Hey, hey, everybody. How are you today? I just want you to know you did some good singing a minute ago. That was really good. I mean that. I'm being serious. You guys sang really well. You look at me confused. You really did. I thought it was great. You guys are a little, a little subdued right now, but you guys really brought it. So um, what I would like to do uh, this morning is to do what we've been doing actually for this whole series. I want to read the passage together. And the main passage this morning is going to come from Revelation 2, starting in verse 12 through 17. And then we're in week three of a series called Fade In. What we've been talking about is this letter, that, this message that was given, by, given from Jesus to John to now these seven churches. And, and as we've been going through the series now, these individual letters are written to certain groups of people, but yet these certain groups of people, it's, it's to them, but also they were circular letters. So more than likely, the letters would have gone around the horn to all of the seven churches. So everybody was literally reading each other's mail, just so you know, and, and they got away with it. So in verse 12, we're going to see uh, what is being told to a church in per- Pergamum. I may use the term Pergamum or Pergamus. Both of those words, it means, this, it means the same place. Uh, the Greek word for that can go either way. And in my notes, I wrote it both ways. So we're just, you just kind of follow along. I'm not talking about a different place. It's the same one. All right, so if you understand, if you're with me, you're tracking with me, say, I am. Love it. All right, here we go. Verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who, uh, who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Can we all agree so far, this sounds like kind of a dangerous place to live. I mean, Satan was known as living there. Can we, all, can we all agree with that? This, Okay, good. Now, that'll help us understand maybe a little bit what's going on in verse 14 too. Nevertheless, transition word, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've talked about the Nicolaitans in the past. Uh, In verse 16, it says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. When I looked at the church in Pergamum, some things came to mind to me, and really I've been thinking about this throughout really the study of all of this series, but specific to the church in Pergamum, because the church in Pergamum, as what we just read, they were being led to a place of compromise. And I found that this was very similar to what's going on in our culture now. There's so much of a pressure from the outside trying to get us to compromise what is true. Bobette Buster said this. This is like another amazing name. I pick great quotes by great names. I just want you to know. I do. Like substance, it's okay, but if they've got a great name, we're rolling with it. Of course, I'm kidding. But Bobette Buster said this. Narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. 
Like, this is so true, which is why it seems like there's a minority of the people who have the megaphone because they're trying to convey a message and get a narrative out. And what the narrative is saying to all Americans specifically is, we need to be divided. We need to be in an uproar. We need to, we need to fight. We need to argue. We need to take sides. It's either black or white. There is no middle ground. And this is all with the pressure that's going on, even in the church, what's going on around us. And this idea that he who has the best story wins. And what the story, that, rather, the story that is being told to us culturally is, we just can't get along. And, and also, consequently, part of the pressure is they're, they're trying to lean heavily on the church, culture around us, just like the church in Pergamum, to get us to compromise the truth. And by truth, I mean the truths that are laid out in the Word of God. This is what's going on in our culture. This is also what's going on in their culture. I'll say it in a different way. Our culture is saying this. Which side are you on? Because you have to choose one or the other. So which side are you on? The dynamic that was happening in Pergamum was similar to what we talked about last week with Smyrna. In Smyrna, we know that that there there was a day of the year, every year, the Roman calendar year, that there was a time where they had to go through and they had to bow down and say that Caesar is king. And if they did not say that Caesar is king, as Christians did not say Caesar was king because Caesar was not king, Jesus Christ is the king of kings, amen? And because of that, they faced all sorts of opposition, which is part of the opposition we talked about last week was a gentleman by the name of Polycarp. Again, epic names around here. Polycarp, who was the bishop in the church in Smyrna, and he himself would not compromise. He himself would not bow down and say that Caesar is king, and he died a martyr's death because of it, as he was stabbed in the heart. But so much pressure is going on in the church in Pergamum and our church today, and just the the Western church today specifically, and even being bold as a follower of Jesus is seen as bigotry. If you're actually bold about your faith, it's seen as bigotry. It's like, oh, well, who, who do you think you are? You think you're better than everybody else? And the correct answer is, no, I'm not better than everybody else. But I know I just cling to the teachings of Jesus. And by His grace, I'm not the person I was yesterday or last year or, or five years ago. It's not that, I'm in, not that I'm better than anybody else, but God's doing a work in me. He's better than everybody else. So it isn't that... That, that one is pitted against the other, but yet being bold as a Christian is seen as being a person who's a bigot. Because again, we claim that there is a truth. Because nationalism is normal. If you don't have a national identity before your spiritual identity, like that's weird. So in our culture, nationalism is normal. Pride is used to persevere. Sensuality is central, perversion is popular, and fear is the food of the masses. Yeah, I come up with those myself, in case you wondered. Like, this is what's going on in our culture. It's no wonder that we're seen, if we're people, the people of God who cling to the truths of God's word, that we're not seen as bigots. We're seen, like, we're not better than people, but we, we're, our life is prescribed and, and is written out. It's a whole different way of life than that. Because the way of Jesus is better than that. That's what's happening in our world today. Trying to get us to, to take sides, form, you know, form lines, gather people around, you know, gather, gather your horde against their horde. And similar pressures 
or face today is what was happening in the church in Pergamum. David Jeremiah, in his commentary on this passage, actually, he said this, whatever Satan cannot curse or crush, he seeks to corrupt through compromise. So Satan knows that he cannot curse or crush the church. The church is going to continue on until Jesus returns. There's going to be an element of the church, whether it's bigger or smaller than the church that exists right now. I have no idea. But there will be a church who perseveres. And David Jeremiah is so right in saying this. He says that Satan cannot curse or crush, but what he seeks to do is corrupt through compromise. That's what was happening in the church in Pergamum. That's what's happening in our world. Back to our passage, Revelation 2, verse 12. In verse 12, we see this particular part of the letter to the church in Pergamum starts in the way that the rest of the letter started too. To the angel of the church, to the angel or the messenger, it's translated out, or the church leader of the church in Pergamum, right. So they all start in a similar way. And now let's talk about the city that's mentioned. The city that's mentioned is Pergamum. I said in week one that, that Ephesus, that was the first letter, Ephesus was, was like the New York City of that part of Asia. And if Ephesus was like New York City, then Pergamum was like Washington, D.C. It was a political base, and it had been the political base for that part of Asia for 300 years. The people in Pergamum were proud of their heritage. They were proud of, of where they lived, like we are people of Pergamum. In the city, there are also some other things worth noting. There are all sorts of other temples around this, and I'm going to give you the, the cliff note version rather than to really nerd out on the other version that I, I was tempted to give before I shorten my notes. There was a massive altar to Zeus there. It was commemorating a, a victory that the Pergamians, again, it was about pride, Pergamians, uh, about their victory over the barbarian Gauls. Maybe you remember that from history class, the Gauls. There were temples in this area to Athena, to Asclepius, Dionysius, and Zeus, all very familiar in Greek culture, Greek gods. If you are uh, familiar with that, you know this. But overshadowing all of these other things, on the top of the, uh, right above the city, about 1,300 feet above the city, there were two prominent fixtures. And these two prominent fixtures, one of which was, was a temple, like we've talked about in Smyrna, and it was a temple that was built there, and it, it was built there uh, just prior to really the birth of Jesus, probably about 20 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And so it's at the top, and it's a temple, and it was constructed just to simply uh, to worship the, it was basically temple worship, or Roman emperor worship in this temple. So you have the temple there, but also near this temple is a great amphitheater. And this amphitheater would seat about 10,000 people. So it's a large amphitheater. And what was really specific about this is, you, is uh, in this amphitheater, you could speak at a normal level and everybody would hear you. Now, I dare not say this because during the 915 service, we had some issues with our microphone. And, my mic and I had to shut my microphone off about midway through my talk. So if that happens, just we'll grin and bear it. But literally, their acoustics were wonderful. But the reason why I tell you that is this. What was happening in the amphitheater was driving the culture. So the, the temple, 
the emperor worship that was happening in the temple then would permeate over to the amphitheater. And if they wanted the masses to believe something or they wanted them to do something, they just put it in the theater. Because theater had a way of manipulating the people. Not that much different than today, quite honestly. So if you wanted something to be common in the culture, you just put it in the amphitheater. You just want it to be common. You want it to be secondhand. You just want people just to, you just want it to be normal in the culture. Just put it in the theater. People would just come in droves and they would soak it up. Like they would take their filter off and they would just receive it. Because the theater then and now has always been about forming narrative and shaping everyday life. Theater for us is a little different because we're not going to uh, Roman amphitheaters that seat 10,000 people with incredible acoustics. Instead, you know, we, we don't have that regard. Instead, what we have is television. So we have ABC and NBC and we have Netflix and Hulu and ESPN and ESPN Plus and all of the other derivatives thereof, but they all do the same thing. They all form us. And I'm about to say something that may make some of you uncomfortable, and I don't say it to make you uncomfortable just to simply make you uncomfortable, but I, I do say this because I think that there's a moment that has just passed in time that I think many followers of Jesus have missed the cultural moment. And instead, what we've done is, instead of embracing whatever it was and building our relationship during the time of COVID and, and all the pandemic and all of that, instead of, a, instead of seizing that moment for the Lord, instead what we did was we just binge-watched Netflix thinking, well, we're just going to wait until this passes. I don't have to go to work anyway, so I'm just going to stay home. It's cool. I'll just stay home, and I'll clock in or do whatever I want to do. I'm at the house, or I'll make my phone calls, but I'm just, oh, back to Netflix. What am I going to watch? And sadly, one of the things that has defined us, and again, I'm not judging you if you've done this, uh, because I, I also watch some Netflix, okay? So you and I are in a very similar boat to, to a degree. But what, I, what does bother me is this. During the time of the pandemic, there was a lot more talk of, of the Tiger King and did, you know, Carol Baskin's kill her first husband rather than how can I love my neighbor well? And I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but also it's an indictment on our culture because this is the message that permeated to where we, where we as a culture just absorb this instead of asking the question, how can I love my neighbor well in a time of cultural divide. Again, I'm not saying that I'm better than you, but I can tell you this, I watched, I think two part, I watched like two full episodes, one in the third one, I realized this is not for me, this is not for my family, and I have the power of shutting my TV off, and you do too. And I didn't watch anymore, because as soon as it went off the rails, I decided I wasn't going to go off with it. We have that decision to make. I give that as an illustration to to just say what's happening in our culture, what's happening through media and entertainment, it's driving our culture. It's forming us. Which is why for the last few years we've been talking about spiritual formation or spiritual reformation because what we understand is we have been formed by things spiritually whether we like it or not. By the things that we absorb, by, by the things that we just allow uh, at times, we just allow into our ears and into our eyes and into our, into our relationships. And also just the things, maybe sometimes we don't allow them. We just kind of like absorb them. Like we would choose not to, but we absorb them. The reason why we've, we've talked about spiritual formation 
is because this, because the way of Jesus is a new rule for life. It's a new rule for life. It's to shape every part of you. It's, invite, it's inviting Jesus into every love that you have, every emotion, every action, every reaction, and every desire. Not living a faith that's compartmentalized, because if your faith is compartmentalized, you will compromise. You will compromise the truth. You will. If you see everything is sliced and diced and everything's compartmentalized, you're not going to be able to see the beauty and the richness of the gospel that the Holy Spirit of God is, is here, here to help us to redeem all areas of life and all facets of life. So what do we do? So when God prompts for us to, to change or to do something, we yield to His input. We yield to the Spirit of God's input to reform us as loved children of God. This is the work of the Spirit in a moment, in a cultural time like this. Not for us to absorb more culture, more entertainment, more uh, theater, whatever that would be for us, but instead to say and ask the question, how can I live in the way of Jesus in a time of cultural division and confusion? In this passage, this church is commended, just like the other churches have been, but this church is commended. If you would uh, go into your Bible into verse 12, it says, These are the words of him who, who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name, and you did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. These are the words of him. There's two things happening here. Just as Jesus has mentioned several times, he points out, he points out a, a pain point in their culture. And maybe you didn't see it because you haven't studied it to the degree that I have. But he's pointing out. So we look at this and just, uh, just a casual glance, we would just look at this and say, these are the words of him who has the double-edged sword. Oh, okay, this is Jesus' words. Yes, but the double-edged sword is something that everyone living in that culture, that, that would, they would know. That the Roman governor would have something that's known as the right of the sword. That the Roman governor would have a zufo sword. It's like a short, double-edged sword. Read that passage again. A short, double-edged sword. So Jesus, as this, this message of Jesus was getting to the church, they would have been like, ooh. Jesus is saying he's a double-edged sword, and yet we live in a culture that the Roman emperor, not the Roman emperor, excuse me, the Roman governor would be able to have the right of the sword. So he was the one who was known as, as being the judge, and he was the jury, and he was the executioner if he wanted to be. So now Jesus is claiming his rightful authority over the Roman governor, but he's doing it in a way where he's taking this culture idea, and he says, I'm even, I'm above the Roman governor. Jesus is also connecting to an idea he had already mentioned prior to this in Revelation 1, verse 16. He says, In his right hand he held seven swords, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. There's a couple mentions to sword, and the, the tongue being a sword in our original passage. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. We're going to see a connection with this next week, actually, as we talk about that church. 
This draws to mind Hebrews 4.12. And that passage is a familiar passage, but what is unfamiliar about it is there's also a cultural reference here because all of the, the first century was written, or excuse me, all of the New Testament was written in the first century, which was a Greco-Roman society. So there too, notice this sharper than a double-edged sword. So there too would be this reference to a sword, a cultural phenomenon with the Roman Greco-Roman society. And now, what does the author of Hebrews say? He says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than every than any, rather, double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I think and I believe that sometimes we, when we either sit under the Word of God by ourselves and we just spend some time maybe meditating on the Scripture, we just spend some time doing some morning devotions, or perhaps we come into a place like this and they listen to me preaching or someone else preaching, or you come and you hear a Bible study, I think sometimes we, we look at the Bible and the Bible reveals something to us, but it provokes something in us, and then our gut, our gut reaction is to push that truth away. But in accordance with what that passage just said, that the word of God is sharper than every two-edged sword cutting to the, between the joints and marrow to get deep inside of us. So what we can presume is this. If you sit under my teaching or somebody else's teaching or, or you just sit under the authority of the word of God and, and something is offensive inside of you against the word of God, it's not the word of God that needs to change. It's something in your heart that needs to change. It isn't that God needs to, he needs to, to bend his truth to fit your needs. You need to yield your spirit to his truth. Notice how the church here is commended. Notice in verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. This had to have been so encouraging for them because he says, I know where you live. In other words, Jesus isn't just, it isn't as if Jesus is just writing this letter of, to a people he really doesn't know and giving them a couple, a couple principles and be like, here, just do this, these things and just wait and die and everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine in heaven. That's, indeed, that's not even what Jesus is getting at. We're going to see this in just a moment, but he says that Jesus knows where they live, where Satan has his throne. There's a lot of ideas maybe as to why there's this reference to Satan's throne. We'll see this in just a couple moments. And one of the ideas just happens to be that all of the, the cult worship that was going on there, that it was a prominent place like a Washington, D.C., and that could be. I'll give you another idea in a minute. Get back to the original passage. It says in verse 13, I know where you live. This specific Greek word is very significant because this Greek word, it means to live uh, live is regularly used for residence, meaning permanent and, and a settled place. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, he's like, unpack your bags, you're not going anywhere. This isn't like there's, other, there's another Greek word that often is used in the New Testament to mean, well, you're just going to live here, you're like a pilgrim. You're just here for a little while, you're just in this transitory state, and eventually you're going to heaven, so just live as a citizen of heaven, and like one day you're gone. That's not the word. The word here, it's, hey, unpack your bags. You're not going anywhere. 
I know that this is the city where Satan lives. I know that this is the place where Satan has his throne. And by the word, uh, the, the usage of the word throne, it means a special authority. So Satan has some sort of special authority in this place. And Jesus is saying to the church, he's like, but I need you to stay there. Unpack your bags. You're not going anywhere. But notice the next thing that he says of them. So not only does he recognize that he knows where they live, he also says this. He says, you remain true to my name. You remain true to my name. Again, such encouragement. That the church, everything going on, it's like you remain true to my name. That's what Jesus says. And the third thing is right after this, he says, you did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. There's, there's, a little, there's a little history here, too. Many scholars believe that Antipas was actually the pastor of this church. And as history has, has been told, and through the years, and again, it's not biblical history, but written history, is that, that Antipas was actually cooked alive inside of a brass bull. That's disturbing. And now when we go back, when we look at this passage, as Jesus is commending the church, he says, you do not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Even with that, I mean, that had to have been so encouraging. Encouraging for them to, to hear that and know that Jesus sees them. And then even in the middle of their struggle that Jesus cares and he's commending them. Now, one of the reasons, one of the explanations, rather, for this, this reference, the city where Satan lives or where he has his throne, it goes back to this emblem. And it's the emblem of Asclepius. And I want to share this image, if we can, this image is the, on the one on the left is the symbol of Asclepius. Asclepius was also a Greek god of mythology. And part of the mythology in Pergamos, because they had a temple dedicated to this Greek god. Does this look familiar, by the way? Anyone? Yeah, it does, right? Because it's still today. Some of the original is on the left-hand side from Asclepius. And then uh, Cladisius, I think, is the other Greek word. I may get those wrong. But uh, you get the idea, but the one on the right is the one that we currently use today. But what you can see is a common thread between the two. What's the common thread? A serpent, right? So one of the explanations that was given is uh, there was a temple, the temple of Asclepius, that existed in Pergamum, Pergamus. And if, because Asclepius was the, the Greek god of healing and power, there was this belief, and if you had an ailment, you could go lay down in this temple, and you could go sleep in this temple, and in this temple, it was known as having tame snakes in the temple, right? So imagine that church experience, right? Uh, you don't have to, actually. They probably have that going on right now in West Virginia, but nonetheless, we're not talking about them. We're talking about us. Uh, sorry, West Virginia, if you're listening. It's true, though. Um, it's reality. Uh, but anyway, so the temple of Asclepius, they would allow you to sleep in this temple. 
And part of the mythology was if you were sleeping in the temple and the belief was if one of these tame snakes touched you, that it was, that it was supposedly healing you because the power was then extended to you. Which then now, if you look at that image, now you see that it was the image of the serpent. So again, where Satan lives. So again, who knows exactly what it is, but this is absolutely plausible because the temple of Asclepius was there. I don't know if it also had healing power if you went in there for one thing and ended up with a heart attack and, you know, because you got touched by a snake in the middle of the night as you're sleeping in this cold, damp temple. I don't know. But uh, the, things will peop- the things that people will do uh, is really astounding. But the temple of Asclepius, maybe that's the explanation. We're not absolutely sure. So now, let's get into verse 14 and the correction needed. The correction needed, the transition word is at the beginning of verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, it's the sword drawing to the, the Roman governor and him having the Zippo sword, the right of the sword, and now Jesus is claiming a rightful authority over everyone and everything. And he's saying, I'm going to come to you with the sword of my mouth. Now, the doctrine of Balaam, what is the doctrine of Balaam? This actually goes, I'm not going to be able to read this because it's lengthy, but if you're a note taker, you may want to write down Numbers 22 through 24 and also Numbers 31, because this is the, the story in the Old Testament that talks about when uh, Balaam, because Balaam is the prototype for all corrupt teachers. This is the prototype for all corrupt teachers. So according to those passages, Numbers 22 through 24 and Numbers 31, Balaam combined the sins of immorality and also idolatry to please Balak, the king of Moab, because he could not curse Israel directly, so he sought to corrupt them subversively, which is what happened. Similar dynamic is happening today. So just as the Balak and the king of Moab and Balaam and and all of that corruption that's happening, similar things happening today. So as you see on the screen, if he can't curse them, he decides that he's going to corrupt them. He's going to corrupt them. What I find interesting, shocking, and troubling is there's a common theme about the challenge that Jesus gives to the churches in this area, and you see it right here in this passage, one of which is by eating the food that was sacrificed to idols, it was a common issue for them. They would have, they would sacrifice uh, these things to idols, and then they would have feast. We're going to see more of this in the weeks to come. But they would have a feast, and part of the feast would be consuming these things. So it was corrupting the church. But also the other common thread is what? Sexual immorality. So a little bit more about the Roman culture. This is a paraphrase of what Cicero, one of the Roman statesmen and, and orders, would have said. He says, if there's anyone who thinks that young men should be allowed to love the love of many women, he is extremely severe. 
I'm not, I'm not able to deny the principle he stands on, but he contradicts not only with the freedom our age allows, but also with the customs and allowances for our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? When did anyone find fault with it? I realize the wording there is, is a little different because it's a paraphrase and a translation all in one. But what he's saying is, why would anyone even challenge? Why would anyone say that, that these things are sexually immoral because we've always done them? He's like, was there ever a time where we didn't do this? This next quote's more clear, talking uh, this from a Greek order and statesman. The previous one would have been from a Roman. This is a direct quote. He says, we have courtesans. I had to look the word up because you probably didn't know what it meant either. It's the word prostitutes. He says, we have courtesans or prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. This is the culture that is surrounding the church in Pergamum. This is the culture that is surrounding the 21st century church. So I sat on this and I thought, I know that Jesus says, I know where you live with the idea that you're not going anywhere, that you're staying there, that you're not just strangers and pilgrims in this land as, as, as the other teaching says, no, you're going to camp out here. You're going you're gonna to live here. Why would Jesus do that? And here's what I settled upon. It's kind of a it's a kind of a phrase, a, a summary phrase, and then I'm going to add into a scripture from the Old Testament that will solidify this. But I think the summary phrase is this. Because mankind began in a garden in Genesis 2.8, communing with God. Mankind ends in a garden city in Revelation 23, 1-5, communing with God. And what we do in the middle matters. That's why. Because what we do matters. How you raise your kids matter. How well you, you, you help and you pour into the next generation, that matters. If you sit in a circle with a group of teenagers and you're helping them to figure out what's going on in their life and how to make right decisions so they don't destroy their life and how to prepare them for adulthood, that matters. You sitting in a, with a group of elementary kids where they're learning elementary truths about Jesus and understanding that they're made in the image of God and understanding just the simplicity and the beauty of the cross, and you're sitting with them, that matters. You as a parent sitting around your dinner table and talking about the Word of God and doing devotions as a family, that matters. You evangelizing your coworkers, your family and your friends, you going out and telling them about the love of Jesus, that matters. It matters. What we do in the middle matters, and we're right in the middle now. So then I sought out, well, is there a, an Old Testament example of this to convey this point? And you may think that this message is short on application, at least up to this point, but you're going to get a heap of it in two verses. Jeremiah 29, 6 and 7 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 5. I said 6 and 7. I fibbed. It's 4, 5, 6, and 7. 
Verse 5 says this. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your, your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, meaning while they're in Babylon, exiled from their homeland, do not, he says, increase in number there, do not decrease. Oh, verse 7 is really striking. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. The city of Babylon, by the way. Pray to the Lord for it. Meaning, pray for the city. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We see this even in the Old Testament. Because they were in the middle. What we do in the middle matters. What we say matters. The truth that we abide by matters. The story we tell our kids matters. The narrative that we believe, it matters. And this passage is amazing because as God is inspiring Jeremiah to write this to write this down and to give this to the people of God. He's saying, I know you were comfortable here in Israel, but now you're going to be uncomfortable in Babylon. And what's implied is there's going to be a time where you think, uh, we just need to bide our time and just wait until everything's normal and we're just going to end up going back to the promised land. But God's word is so clear, abundantly clear in verse 5. He, does, he doesn't give any allowance for that. He says, no, Build houses and settle down. The next thing is really interesting because he says plant gardens. The beauty of a garden is this. You plant a garden and you have to wait, don't you? You plant that garden. You water that garden. You fertilize that garden. But that garden that you plant, it takes time to produce a harvest. And what's implied in this passage in Jeremiah 29 is you're going to be here a while, get comfortable, have children, Pray for the city, because if you pray for the city and you pray for the leadership in that city, you too will prosper as that city prospers. This passage ends with something that's really helpful. It's a promise in verse 16 and 17. There's one bit of instruction in this whole passage. It's one word of, of, of instruction. Of like, hey, what, what are we supposed to do? There's one word. It's, a, it's the beginning of verse 16. Can somebody tell me what that is? Repent. Like, he's like, I don't need to say anything else. Just repent. You know what you've done. I know where, Jesus knows where you live. I'm giving you this message. Repent. Turn away. Turn away physically. Turn away mentally. Turn away from, from your broken way of living. Change that to live in the way of Jesus in the middle of a culturally divided, the culturally perverse, the sexually immoral. If everybody else is fooding, food, eating food sacrificed to idols, not so with you. You don't do this. You repent. But then the promise comes. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of the mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with the new name written on it, only or known only to him 
who receives it. Again, a few ideas as to what this hidden man is. We, we may imply and maybe infer, Jesus may be inferring that he is the bread of life. We can read that for ourselves in John 6, that Jesus is the bread of life. One of the great I am statements in that part of, of the Gospel of John, there's seven I am statements, and, and this is like right in the heart of it. These great statements of Jesus declaring these things about himself. And perhaps that's what he's saying. Of, he's saying this hidden manna, meaning it's, it's hidden to them because they're, they have faith in Christ and it would be hidden to the people on the outside. I'm not really sure. Perhaps. But also the, the stone, the best way of understanding this stone would be to understand the, the time of athletics in that day. Because if you... The white stone was a symbol of victory. If you were victorious in in a sport or sporting event, you would be given a white stone. And also this white stone, it would be something that you would have and it would be personally, it would have an inscription for you, very similar to what Jesus said, white stone with, with your name on it. And also this white stone would allow you then to go to this feast, the feast of victors. So this, this stone, you didn't get a ticket stub because they didn't have that back then. So instead, you would take this white stone, and this would be your way of getting into the feast of victors. That, I think, is the best explanation for the latter part of this. What Jesus is saying to them, what he's saying to us. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's something here for us. There's something that, that, that is transferable directly from their culture into our culture, from their understanding to our understanding. There is something that we see uh, that Jesus gives the, the one thing for them to, to take away is repent. There's, there's something there for them to repent of, and most likely there's something here for us to repent of. But notice what he says, to him who overcomes a victor. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. There's such a hopeful thing at the back part of this because I believe also a message that's carried on through this is this, that each Christian is cleansed from sin. Notice it's a white stone. It's clean. And those of us who repent, we confess our sin and we repent of our sin, our sinful state, and we ask Jesus Christ to, to forgive us. We, we confess with our mouth and we believe with our heart that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus Christ is God, and that's the only pathway to salvation. Just as Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, i.e. no one gets to heaven, but through me, just as Jesus said all of that, we can only do that because of a clean But we're also promised a new self. Did you know this? A new self. New loves, new desires, new attitudes, new thoughts, new solutions to old problems. The new self. It's profound, isn't it? And victory over sin and death. Victory over sin and death.
And there's so much in this passage, and I've intentionally walked through this passage in such a way to draw as much of the cultural richness as I can because while this was written thousands of years ago, nearly a couple thousand years ago, it's like, although it was written in that time frame, I see so many similarities today. And in our culture, is trying to, it's just this tug of war trying to, to get us to team up and group up and get on their side. And they, they're wanting us to see everything that is black and white. And even by looking at this passage, you see that even to Jesus, this wasn't all black and white because they're commended of three things specifically. And yet he says, nevertheless, and he challenges them because they're compromising. So even in that, there's not a black and white. He says, you're doing these things really well. And yet there's this other thing, these other things you're not. You're not silencing the false teachers of Balaam. The corruption, the Nicolaitans. He says, you're, there's still a group within you that are allowing this to happen. But he does this while he's also holding the tension of the three things that he's commended them for. Which is why we can come into a space like this. And in one way, we can walk away so encouraged. And we can walk away encouraged and we can hold that, that encouragement like it feels like tension, but I don't believe God wants it to be intention. Of, of just encouragement, say, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your comfort. Thank you for your promises today. Thank you for letting me know that I have a white slate, a clean slate, that my sins are forgiven. And at the same time, he can also give us a message of, hey, brother and sister, there's something for you to repent of. That it's not one or the other. 